then. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Oh, Kill you all. You don't know what death is. We belong dead. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. All of you, bud. Free for your life. <laughs> <laughs> to a new world of pots and monsters. Hello, boils and ghouls, and welcome to Pods and Monsters. I am your host, Robert, and with me, as always, is our other host... Inthia. Inthia. We are the hosts with the mosts. We are. (laughs) And today we are going to go for a little walk. Where are we going? (laughs) (laughs) Today we are going to talk about a classic movie from 1932, one that has spawned several sequels and remakes and whatnot, and that is The Mummy. The Mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. The Mummy... One of the classic monsters, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. Those are the big four. Mm -hmm. The Mummy always plays second fiddle to the others, I feel like. Well, (laughs) I'm going to say right now, I can see how. (laughs) Well, before we begin, uh, what did you know about the Mummy beforehand? I assumed it was more similar uh, to the Brendan Fraser Mummy from the 90s, Yeah, which I love a lot. I love the Breaded Fraser Mummy, and that will be an episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good, because I really love that. Oh, I'm so excited. My my biggest criticism of that movie is the mummy himself. Okay. uh, The CG, basically. Okay, okay. If they had the mummy in that movie... Sorry. (laughs) We're we're turning it to the 1999 (laughs) Mummy podcast now. But if they had the mummy in that movie looking the way Boris Karloff did at the beginning of this mummy... Mm Mm-hmm. It would have been the best movie ever. Okay, I could see that. <laughs> um, so pretty much people open up a tomb and it unleashes a mummy's curse. And then I put Emotep and a slow moving mummy and there's a museum involved. And that's all I knew that I could assume this movie was going to be about. <laughs> that is the movie. <laughs> well, for those of you wondering, you might be surprised to learn there's a little bit more than that. Well... <laughs> I mean, there is. I was actually very surprised. It was a little bit more involved, but... So why don't we get right to it? We watched the Blu-ray version of The Mummy, the 1932 film. It looks glorious. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, it was shot yesterday. So let's go through the movie. Okay, so we open on a Universal title, a Universal Pictures title, with a little plane, and the little plane goes sputtering by, and that might be my, well, it didn't sputter, it was a pretty, it's pretty well, sputtery. functioning plane for the time. But the sound is sputtery. 
I love it so much. That instantly made me happy. Yeah, I love that logo. It's not my favorite of the Universal logos, but it's my second favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what's your first favorite? My favorite is the one from the 1940s with the twinkling stars. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the one that has that great theme? Do you think that you're changing your tune at all during that five minutes pop up because it was just one I know I continuous it was a little long so we open up on the cute plane, and from there we go into this really great opening credit scene, which is an amazing model of the Sphinx and the pyramids, and mm. it says the mummy on it, and it's like a, on a turntable and it rotates. Yeah, they they carved these models to be the opening credits. Does it still exist, do you know? Not that I know of. There's not a ton of props that would exist from these movies anymore. One of the things that really stood out about this movie was how amazing the sets are, mm-hmm. the props, just every, I felt that visually it was a really great movie. Yeah. Um, I love so much about it. I love the costumes. I love the sets. I love the exterior shots. All the props were great and super detailed. Yeah. Not to say that it's not any less than any other movie, but this one stuck out to me yeah. as being so much more elaborate in that aspect and then the story was a little lacking well as we get more into it we'll talk about the making of the movie but a little bit of a tease is that the movie was inspired by king tut's tomb being discovered 10 years earlier in 1922 and lots of the props that are in the movie mm-hmm. were replicas of props found in that discovery well they weren't props treasures found in that discovery <laughs> artifacts so yeah, and then um, the music that we hear while the credits are playing is Swan Lake again. The same theme from Dracula. Yep. And some familiar names, um, specifically Edward Van Sloan, his and Boris Karloff, obviously, yep. um, are the two names that really stood out to me. And there's another actor that we have seen before. Oh. You didn't recognize him in the movie? No. David Manners, the male love interest, is the same love interest from Dracula. Frank? Yeah, he's the one that's... Did he have a mustache in Dracula? No. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) He does seem to be a little bit more mature and natural by the time we get to the money, even though it's only a year later. Yeah, his acting greatly improved between the two movies to the point where I was not bothered by him. He wasn't shooing bats away, I suppose. (laughs) Right. But he is playing basically the same character. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about that as we go. There are a ton of similarities between this and Dracula. It's almost the same movie, it feels like. (laughs) Yeah, actually, now that you bring it up, yes, yes, it is. Starting with the theme music. Yeah. So we have the credits and then a scene that is the scroll of Toth. Mm-hmm. which is Isis raising Osiris from the dead. It's setting up a really important part of the movie, which I first was like, I thought maybe it might be somewhat of a throwaway. I don't know. I really don't know what my thought was when we saw this. Um, it was a lot to read. So they tell you what the scroll is, and right. then they give you the inscription on the scroll, which is what mm-hmm. she would say to raise Osiris from the dead. Right. Right. Which is the scroll that plays a role prominently throughout the movie. Correct. 
So our first scene in the movie is a field expedition by the British Museum in 1921. Mm -hmm. Um, They've dug up a mummy and the mummy is looming kind of ominously stood up in the back of this scene that takes place pretty much in this room. Yes. In the background, you see the mummy. You could tell which... I feel like before the invention of Blu-ray, back when in the old days when I would watch it on video cassette, I never really thought about it not being Boris Karloff back there, but you could tell it's not. It's a dummy. Oh, I don't, I never thought it wasn't him. Yeah, uh, in those scenes in the background, especially when they they have some shots where they're reading the hieroglyphics inside of the sarcophagus uh-huh. and you could see in the corner the mummy's face. Uh, you could kind of see how he doesn't really have nostrils uh, oh, okay. because it, it was a very, very elaborate likeness of Boris Karloff as a dummy. And that is a prop that I want. I don't I don't no. know what happened to that prop. Uh-huh. If I am mistaken and it really was Boris, then he makes a great looking dead mummy. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it was a prop. I've heard well, I some mean, discussion about this and it looks like a prop to me. Okay. I mean, as a first time viewer, I assumed that it probably was one, but I never thought it wasn't him. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So I just thought it was really good. The movie looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like how in this scene, almost in every shot, he's in the back, which I feel like it's really foreshadowing. I don't know. He just seems like he's keep an eye on him so i was always looking at him right so we're introduced to three gentlemen in this room one of them is i believe his name is dr muller the other dr muller is played by edward van sloan the other one is wemple yeah sir joseph wemple sir joseph wemple and then a third gentleman whose Uh, name by the way he is played by arthur byron uh, and and for those who don't remember, Edward Van Sloan was in Dracula as Professor Van Helsing, and he was in Frankenstein as Doctor Waldman. And then there's a gentleman who I we I didn't I didn't catch his name. His name is Ralph Norton. Oh well, okay. And he is played by Bramwell Fletcher. And a little bit of uh, interesting fact about Bramwell Fletcher: he ended up marrying Helen Chandler in 1935. Helen Chandler played Mina in Dracula. Oh, look at that. So Muller uh, notices that something is off about this mummy that they've exhumed from the tomb. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that he, he notices that he has died in an unpleasant manner. And this really brings up a lot of like foreshadowing. And you get to find out that it looks like he was buried alive. Mm-hmm. And um, they're reading the hieroglyphics around the sarcophagus. And in there, the ones that protect them in the afterlife have been scratched out. So it's obvious that this person died a really horrific death and he was being punished, basically. Um, Something to betray the gods. So they also notice that he comes with his own accessory box. So there's a box with another box inside of it. And mm-hmm. this box is sealed. So I called it Temple Treasure. And it has an inscription. And it's pretty much a warning and a curse to anyone who opens this sealed box. Right. Death. Eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. Naturally, gotta open it. Yeah. And instantly, as soon as they want to open it, Dr. Muller, played by Edward Van Sloan, goes into his warning of... Don't open it, because you will be cursed. Well, let's see what's inside. Wait! You have read the curse. Now, this is 
another instance where the mummy is like Dracula. Basically, the three monster movies that Edward Van Sloan is in, all he does is warn the characters of what's going to happen throughout the movie. He knows a lot more. Well, he's the voice of reason. He's almost what the audience is thinking I would okay. say to a degree okay. where you know you shouldn't meddle with bringing back people from the dead or opening cursed boxes. and He's kind of voicing those concerns and he plays that same type of role all the time. So he sends out his warnings and uh, the Oxford, young Oxford kid ends up calling it a bunch of mumbo jumbo and he's kind of pompous about it. Oh, come Dr. Miller. Surely a few thousand years in the earth would take the mumbo jumbo off any old curse. Oh, I cannot speak before a boy. And him and Wemple slyly tells them, We'll open this once he leaves. After he takes inventory of everything, we'll go ahead and open it. So they have this plan to go ahead and do this. Meanwhile, the kid is sneaking looks around and is kind of just like making himself look busy. Um, But he's slowly getting more and more tempted by this box. Yeah. Uh, And at this point, Dr. Muller has taken Sir Joseph outside under the Egyptian stars. (laughs) I forgot the exact word, but something like that. To basically talk to him seriously that he shouldn't be doing this. I like that here you get more of uh, the explanation about this scroll that we were introduced to in the credits of the movie. Mm-hmm. They talk about the potential consequences and the contents that are in this box mm-hmm. and how irreversible this whole situation might be. So between this, you get these cuts between going back and forth between what's happening inside of this site and them being outside. And this kid opens the box and in it he reveals the giant scroll the mummy is like behind him Mm -hmm. and he's out of focus and i really like this shot because like the mummy seems a little big but then he's also like tilted to the side so he seems like he's kind of like cast back there but he's definitely looming yeah and he's not in focus so the kid is looking at the scroll and he ends up writing down some of the hieroglyphics and starts mumbling inaudibly so you can't hear exactly what he's saying but you know that he's saying at least some part of the scroll yeah he's uh translating the ancient language and so you end up seeing um shots which i really like this the mummy waking up and it's very is it slow methodical discreet it's just like his eyes just kind of pop open a little bit and then his hand moves. Yeah, and you could very subtly see like the muscles in his mouth are starting to move mm-hmm. a little bit. And it's not like a shock that he's come to life. It's just natural. He wakes up and when his arms slightly go down, you see all the dirt and dust fall off of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good. Uh, the mummy walks over to the scroll and you see the young man. He like notices him basically yeah well you see his hand reaching for the scroll and when he's reaching for the scroll he has this little um piece of dirt that stuck to the end of his finger Mm -hmm. it's just hanging there and i don't know why that always stuck out to me it made the mummy seem so real and dirty like i almost feel like in a movie he would be too clean Mm -hmm. maybe or or a hollywood version of a mummy but just seeing that little speck of dirt for some reason to me makes me feel like this is a real mummy here (laughs) (laughs) the makeup for this is really great it's one of the best i probably besides the frankenstein monster this would be my second favorite either this or phantom of the opera maybe okay well it's just it's amazing and it's and for how elaborate his makeup is i'm surprised we only get it for this scene yeah it's barely in the movie yeah i feel like 
perhaps the director, Carl Freund, wasn't expecting something to be that good, mm-hmm. you know? Because I almost feel like, and maybe because Carl Freund was a sort of new director, I'm, I'm not sure if this was his first movie, but he was a cinematographer before this, and he um, he had concerns about staying within budget, staying on time. And I, I, I wonder if a more seasoned professional director would have saw the incredible makeup and added scenes just because it was there or shot it differently yeah so his hand comes over to the scroll and then he ends up like leaving with the scroll meanwhile this kid has witnessed all of it and goes from being terrified into this maniacal laughter and then even making a joke about the mummy going out for a walk He he, he went for a little walk. You should have seen his face. The last shot from this scene is the handprint of the mummy. Yeah. Where the scroll was. Which is always kind of funny because the mummy would have never touched the table like that. Yeah. But uh, you're supposed to think that's where he picked up the scroll and that was the residue, the dirt, the earth that was left behind from his cloths and linens. So from here we fast forward 10 years to 1932 to another field expedition by the British Museum. So it cuts forward to what was present day at the release of this movie. Oh, I didn't didn't think about that. So here we're introduced to Wemple, and this is- This is the son of Wemple. Young Wemple, who I thought was a junior. Turns out he's not, his name is Frank. Um, So he's with a friend, (laughs) and they're talking about the incident from 10 years ago. They end up mentioning somewhat casually that the young Oxford chap, as they called him, went mad and that he died. Died in a straitjacket, I believe. Yes. Wouldn't it have been something if uh, that mad guy, Ralph Norton, shared a room with Renfield right next door? They probably did. Oh, no. Well, well, who knows? They could have. (laughs) (laughs) So a man arrives to give them an artifact and we find out that his name is Artith. Ardith Bay. And this is our friend Boris Karloff wearing a yeah. fez. and He's wearing a fez and he has uh, old age makeup to make him look very frail. Obviously, he's the mummy, mm-hmm. um, sort of uh, rejuvenated. Yes. Still frail, but yeah. rejuvenated. Permit me to present you with the most sensational find since that of Tutankhamun. So he says that the artifact that he's holding is from a tomb for... I can never say her name. Anxanamen. Anxanamen. I'm not going to be able to say this. All right. <laughs> so he says that it's from the tomb of the princess Anxanamen. Oh, he also mentions that Egyptians aren't allowed to dig up their own dead, uh, that they leave that to the museums to do. And I wonder if that's really the case or Ardith Bay, also known as Imhotep, which is his uh, original name. Ardith Bay is his alias. Uh, I wonder if he's just too frail and fragile <laughs> yeah. to do this himself. Yeah, I'm wondering that too. I kind of wish that they elaborated a little bit more on this. So the men decide that they are going to cable Wemple's dad to let him know that they're going to go open up the tomb. Mm-hmm. So they all get together. They go over to the tomb. Well, and they don't believe there's anything there yet. No, they're extremely skeptical. Um, and so they have workers that are digging and they find some steps. And I believe this is when Ardith Bay decides to leave. So they end up uncovering the tomb and they find that it is sealed. 
and it's sealed with the seal of the jackal, I believe. But they're super, super excited about this find. So they uncover the tomb, they open it up, uh-huh. and everything goes to the Cairo Museum. And so yeah, now... Th- it's uh, uh, the British Museum in Cairo. Yes. Yeah. So now they're exhibiting her tomb and all of her contents, and... We find Ardith Bay looking at the mummy. Yeah, the mummy of Anxanaman. Yeah, so everything's open. You just see, you don't see her face because it's all wrapped up. Uh huh. And he's just kind I of. I have a question. Yeah. Sorry. When we end up seeing later on in the movie, Imhotep being mummified, they wrap up his face. Yeah. When we're introduced to him at the beginning of the movie, his face is uncovered. Yeah, I thought about that. I don't know. I mean, is it possible for bandages to disintegrate? Like I that? mean, not not to I that mean, degree, but maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just nitpicking. I just I just wondered. I mean, honestly, it could just be a creative choice. I mean, real mummies don't really look like that. That's true. When they do show Anxanamanon, <laughs> <laughs> what is their name? Anxanaman. <laughs> so Anxanaman, when they show her, her face is all wrapped up. Everything. We yeah. don't really see what she looks like. But it does intercut between him having this moment in the museum with the mummy. Sort of talking with her, uh, reminiscing as it were. Um, it pans over to a woman who we find out her name is Helen, who is talking to our friend, Dr. Muller. Yep. She's played by Zita Johan. They are at a dance. Here we find out a few things. That she's staying with Dr. Muller. Her parents are not around and she's half Egyptian and she is entranced by the city. She really just is like sitting on this balcony looking around. Looking at the pyramids. So it goes back to the museum and here we see Wumple Sr. and him and Arth Bay are having a conversation. Well, they're about to close the museum. And uh, Wemple meets Ardith Bay and realizes that they should keep the museum open all night for him. They have him to thank for the exhibit, for Pete's sake. Yes. He goes to touch Ardith Bay, and Ardith Bay comments that he doesn't like being touched. Your pardon, I dislike to be touched. An Eastern prejudice. The thing about that is... He is so fragile uh-huh. because he is 3,700 years old. Yes. Like he could just turn to dust any second, but he's also so powerful at the same time and menacing. It's very interesting. It's because he's so tall. He's like just a menacing beanpole. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that he wears the fez throughout the whole thing. It's like he has a flat head again, like Frankenstein. <laughs> so um, Wemple invites him over for evening talking and whatnot and um he declines like bay ardith bay wants nothing to do with them we also find out that because ardith bay helped them locate all of these items everything has to stay in cairo nothing can go back to the uk can go back to the british museum everything has to stay at this museum and it seems to be what? somewhat of a sore subject. Yeah, I didn't realize that was because Ardith Bay helped them find it. Yeah, they were talking about how he plays, at least that's what I understood. Mm-hmm. Which the theme I find with a lot of the younger people in this movie is especially, well, they're all men. There's just one woman in this movie. They are there to get items for fame, notoriety, and perhaps money. Mm-hmm. They want something in exchange for this. And all of the older people, usually Muller, is like, this 
stuff will actually help civilization and us understand where things have come from, where we've come from, and are looking more in an educational benefit to it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think it plays into a little bit more of the mummy's plan that even if these gentlemen were to leave, he still has an infinite, um, infinite in quotation marks, amount of time to be with all of this stuff and to do what he needs to do. Uh-huh. So time is somewhat on his side. Except for uh, operating hours of the museum. Yeah, except for that. The time is not. Get out, sir. Um, <laughs> so Ardith Bay is seen praying next to the mummy and chanting. And this is after the museum is closed and everyone left. Now, I assume they said that they should have kept the museum open for him, but he wasn't really allowed to stay there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't able to, but he stayed anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like he did, especially because there's a whole incident with the guard, right? Yeah. So from here, again, we have another scene where we're going between two different settings. So we have Ardith Bay praying next to the mummy and chanting, and he's obviously reading from the scroll. Yep to Helen. It intercuts to Helen and she's at the dance um, having a really great time and she instantly becomes transfixed and heads to the museum. On her way to... She's in a trance the whole time. Yes. On the way back, she is chanting back in response to Ardith Bay chanting. She ends up getting driven to the museum And she goes up the steps of the museum, and as she's going up, the Wemples are leaving the museum and getting into their car. She tries to enter the museum and is pounding on the door, and they're like, what are you doing? And she ends up fainting and passing out at the steps of this. Um, And next to Wemple Jr., or sorry, Frank. I just called him, because I really at this point thought that they had the same name. (laughs) I actually ended up writing down, like, his name is Frank. Uh So the Wemples end up taking her back to their place. um, And they lay her on a, like, fainting couch, a couch of some sort. A love seat. Um, And she is talking in her sleep. And she keeps saying Imhotep while she is passed out. Imhotep. Yeah, she's saying Imhotep and she is speaking the language of Egyptians long ago. Yeah, he makes a comment that the language had been dead for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And so we go back to the museum where we see a guard who finds Ardith Bay in the museum. It's actually a very creepy scene where like the lights go out and then the guard has a flashlight and he shines it onto Ardith Bay who is crouched over praying. And because of his like old man makeup but then his eyes are really like he's got this eyeliner to give him like those almond giant almond shaped eyes he like turns around and looks almost surreal yeah it's such a creepy scene it's very creepy i don't know why that stuff always scares me when lights turn off and there's only a flashlight looking around and there's something really bright that appears it's not a jump scare but it's very eerie for some reason. It's unnerving. And you can tell that he is very deeply involved in this moment of trying to bring back like the love of his life. Mm-hmm. And his eyes are all wild and he's almost like in this like primitive crouched over state. It's so horrible. Just when he turns <laughs> around, it's like he's slightly grotesque and you're just like, no. And I made a noise and you went, what? And I was just like, oh, it's just so gross to see him just do this. Because it's just so, I don't know. He just looks 
surreal. And I always end up getting freaked out by certain looks in people's eyes. And <laughs> yeah. I will say that one thing about Boris Karloff in this movie, he's got some amazing eyebrows and <laughs> there's a lot going into those eyebrows the combination of that eye makeup that he's got going that's yeah. very unsettling well boris karloff always has deep dark eyes anyway but they are highlighted in this one to show that and then later in the movie you will see that they do the same effect that they do in dracula with the little lights only on his eyes i know but this one so in dracula it was like that slit that goes across his eyes right right and in this it just felt like it zeroed in right in his eyeballs like it was only the whites of his eyes that lit up right and when he's talking to helen later it's a light turning on and it just sort of yes. happens in the middle of the scene as opposed to dracula where it just cuts to a shot where his eyes are instantly lit that way and again same cinematographer uh carl freund directed this oh it's so good it's so so good so Ardeth bay ends up killing this guard off screen so helen wakes up and uh, dr moler has been able to track her down and they actually ask him how <laughs> i really like this they ask him how he found them with her and he goes on to explain exactly how he found her with um that he found out that she took a car to the museum and at the museum he found out that she had passed out and the wemples were leaving the museum so he just came over to the wemples house <laughs> um, it was just really interesting to see them really add in kind of pointless stuff but then it just gives you more of an insight into Muller who I feel out of all of them is the more developed character yeah well especially Wemple the senior mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just scared and dopey eventually almost like the mummy Ardeth Bay refers to him like as a fool and yeah he's he, he, he appears weak yeah he's ill-equipped for this situation so Wemple Sr. and Muller end up talking about Helen and what she's been saying. And typical fashion of these movies, some stuff just happens kind of uh, suddenly. So I believe that Frank and Helen are talking about the tomb. So he ends up telling her about seeing the princess's sarcophagus uh-huh. and that he instantly, well, instantly almost fell in love with her just as soon as he saw the likeness of her and then he looks at her and he comments that she looks so familiar we find out that the guard has been found and that he has died of shock Uh and the guard has the scroll and meanwhile helen and frank are still at the couch Mm-hmm. getting closer and closer and bam they're making out oh, i know it seems absurd when we've known each other such a short time <laughs> yep they're in love are they though frank just seems a little entranced so in 1932 that's how you fall in love here's my theory going forth later on in the movie helen gets very desperate to get to Ardith bay I think this might be the start of that desperation because she's very much under this hypnotic curse trance situation still Uh even though she's woken up she's been murmuring all about Ardeth Bay the whole time what is to say that she is not trying to seduce this poor dude into taking her to him you could say that but later on in the movie you find out that Ardeth Bay wants Frank disposed of yeah if it was his plan for her to seduce him 
to dispose of him. It. Mm, I wouldn't take it in that direction. I thought of it of just her trying to get where she needs to get to. Oh. And he's a means to get there. I almost thought that maybe he was being hypnotized. But then later on, the servant is hypnotized and he's like straight up hypnotized. Yeah. So I just felt like there was something a little bit more between the two of them because it was just so sudden. But then again, it is these movies yeah. are an hour and 15 minutes. We don't have time for this. Get right to the meat. Make out right now. I would agree with you that that could be a theory, but I think that's just the way the movies were made back then. Okay. So Muller and Wemple Sr. Uh, know that she's cursed and they're talking well, about her in the study. Yeah. And then the servant has the scroll and brings it to them, right? Yes. The servant, credited as the Nubian, he was played by Noble Johnson. You thought it was someone in blackface. A hundred percent. I was convinced this was someone in blackface because there's something there's. Yes. I, I mean, I'll admit he does look like he's a blackface, but he actually was African-American, Noble Johnson. And he's most famous for playing the head native in King Kong. Watu! Come on, Skipper. Make him a friendly speech. And in this movie, The Mummy, he is the Wemple's servant. And as you said, he gets hypnotized and later becomes the servant of Ardeth Bay. I am 100% sure they put makeup on him to make him look darker. He could pass for various nationalities. Like, he could yeah. be anything. Well, he, he could have been various nationalities. Yeah, for sure. So they're in the study and you see them kind of try to figure out what to do with the scroll. Ardeth Bay shows up and uh-huh. he hypnotizes the servant. He also wakes up Helen and he's claiming that he's there to see Wemple. But he's he's also like mesmerized by Helen and they have like this stare off. They do. They just stare into each other's eyes the whole time like they have some sort of past relationship or something like that. Yep. Ardeth Bay starts to hypnotize Helen uh-huh. and we see this eye effect yeah. happen in this. And it's always just this very close up scene of his face and the eyes slowly light up, but they're just these huge ominous eyes. Yeah, that's the best shot of him in the movie. Uh, it's a classic shot, and they reuse that shot two other times besides this. Time. Yes. So the dudes show up, and Muller knows what's up with Bay, and he knows that Artis is trying to hypnotize Wemple at this point. I think at this point, Muller knows that he is the mummy, mm-hmm. but he's trying to get him to admit that he has something mm-hmm. going on with it, and he shows him artifacts, including a picture of himself as the mummy. Yes. Now, this scene is exactly like in Dracula when he shows him the mirror. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> like, like, you expect Artith Bay to slap that picture out of his hand, you know? <laughs> he says, but why do you show me this stuff? And then... Because he's being interrogated, Ardeth Bay is getting angry. Mm-hmm. And he says he wants the scroll back, that it's his. He, yeah, uh, he very easily gives that up. He's like, well, I want my scroll. Well, he says that he uh, got it in an auction or something like mm-hmm. that. And when he's not getting what he wants, he starts to put a curse on the older Wemple. We had foreseen this. Scroll is in safe hands and will be destroyed the minute it is known that harm has come to us. I, I thought that was so good when he starts doing that. And then <laughs> I love when Edward Van Sloan says, If I could get my hands on you, I'd break your dried flesh to pieces. 
Muller comments that his power is too strong and Bay ends up leaving. Muller ends up suggesting or actually just telling Wemple that he needs to burn the scroll. He's like, just burn it. Again, this is like Dr. Waldman telling Dr. Frankenstein to, you must destroy the monster. So we end up seeing, I'm going to call it Arthur Bay's like lair where he has this big old jacuzzi. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually like a seeing pool, right? Where yeah, it's a pool. Called? It's a pool. But it, there's a, like a term for it where he's like looking. Is it a seeing pool? A vision pool? It's a magic pool. So we see Arthur Bay looking into this pool, which I really like the effect of this giant pool. I think actually later on it has more of a foggy effect happening with it. Yeah, later on's the the great effect. Um, But here he's looking at the men pull the scroll out of a hiding place. So he knows that they had it the whole time because they had told him that the scroll was taken away by someone. Right. And turns out, nope, it's in their study it's in the in there um and so wemple who's alone in his study is trying to burn this scroll there's a bunch of dramatic music and it cuts to bay basically crushing his heart is what i took it as um he's chanting putting a curse on him from from afar yeah and uh watching the effect of it through the pool he keels over and he ends up dying the hypnotized servant comes in collects the scroll and puts newspaper into the fireplace and burns it to yeah. fake the scroll being burnt. Which is very smart of him. Most of the time you'd think they would just take it and leave, but he had the thought they have to believe that he got to burn the scroll and mm-hmm. uh, they won't be on our on our trail. Yep. Unfortunately, Dr. Muller is too smart for that and later examines the ashes and finds out that it's only newspaper. Yep. And the scroll is made of papyrus. Meanwhile, here's good old Frank saying that he doesn't think that Ardith is the mummy. But Muller's prepared. After he's figured out that this is newspaper, he also has a little amulet of Isis to give to Frank. He says that this will protect him against Ardith Bay. Yeah. Can we also talk about how Frank is not at all bothered that his father is dead? <laughs> yeah, he's not really. <laughs> he doesn't. He's more concerned. Well, he was, but then they brought up whether Helen likes him or not. And he was like more into that. He's like, well, what am I talking about? So that's another point that maybe he is under a spell, sort of. He's just so infatuated with her. So Ardith Bay summons Helen and he ends up telling her about her past. Yeah. Well, first, Frank says he's going to protect her and tells her not to leave her apartment. Mm -hmm. And someone will always be around. Well, she managed to leave and... She took her dog for a little walk. I know. She did take her dog. Yeah, she was on the phone. She's like, I'm never going to leave. And then like two seconds later, she was summoned and she's like, gotta go and takes her dog out. Yeah. And she heads straight for Ardith Bay. Yep. Um, when we see him in his lair house. Noble Johnson uh, answers the door. So now he's the servant of uh, Ardith yeah. Bay for sure, because he's answering doors now. That's what servants <laughs> do. Um, we see a cat, a fluffy white cat. Yep. And then he says to her, you will not remember what I show you now. And yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. And then at that point, he goes into the history of his story and Onks and Almond. So it's a flashback. It's all told through a lovely flashback where we find out that he is the son of a pharaoh. Yeah. And again, all of this is showed in the pool. 
there's a great shot from behind of Ardeth Bay and Helen looking in the pool and there's fog forming all around it and the camera pushes in on it and the fog sort of spreads out to show dissipates dissipates to show the um the flashback and this was a great effect of the time people were really impressed with this oh i think it's great and very innovative for 1932 i like that it also keeps the borders of the pool it does that's great it almost reminds me of like a 1950s television though (laughs) (laughs) but during the early shots you'll notice that the flashback footage has waves in it like from the water it's very very good effect um so we find out that he's the son of a pharaoh and that she is a forbidden love she is as we find out later a priestess of isis i believe is what she ended up saying and she's dying right she dies and he plans to bring her back to life with the scroll and so as a young man he ends up sneaking into a tomb yep this is 3,700 years ago. (laughs) Steals the scroll. I like when he's stealing the scroll. He's stealing it underneath the statue. That Oh, like with the little button and he's all boop and like the little like he presses front of it. Yeah, he presses the button and it opens. But then when he's taking it, the statue moves its arm. Mm. Basically a warning that he's going to pay for this. And he (laughs) runs away frightened. Not before taking the scroll, of course. (laughs) He's caught by guards who then take him to his father. He's caught by guards when he's at a sarcophagus chanting. Yes. Trying to bring her back to life. Yes. His own father sentences him to death um, for trying to bring her back to life. So we get to see them desecrating his sarcophagus, wrapping him up. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, my favorite, they just punt him into this hole in the ground <laughs> they just throw him in and then they um into an unmarked grave yep and they take the scroll and put that in that box the sealed box inside of another box and throw that in with him also yep and then they have the slaves bury him and then the guards kill the slaves so they can't tell anyone and, and then, then other then, guards kill those guards so they can't tell anyone yep. it's like uh, the dark knight <laughs> the joker and all of his minions. Oh, okay. <laughs> but a little interesting story. There was an actor who was in the movie uncredited named Arthur Tovey, T-O-V-E-Y. Mm-hmm. And he played one of the Nubian slaves who buries Imhotep. Uh-huh. And he gets a spear thrown at him and dies. Oh, is he the one with the he's really not, great, like... He's not the main one. Oh, okay. He's, he's one of them. Uh-huh. He was a white guy and he was in blackface to play the slave, but he also played the guard that threw the spear. So you could say he killed himself in the movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so moving on from that, Emotep tells Helen that he has more to tell her, so we're out of this flashback. Yeah. But she's not ready. Yeah, she's not ready. She's very confused. And I like when Imhotep says, uh, the pool is sometimes troubled. This fluffy cat hisses. And then we find out that the cat kills the dog. Yeah. It's crazy. The dog whimpers. And then later, Helen goes back to Frank mm-hmm. and is explaining why she left. She just wanted to go out and she took the dog with her. And he says, well, where's the dog now? And says the dog whimpered and she found him dead with the cat on top of him which is crazy so helen and frank end up talking about what happened and frank tells her that he loves her helen i love you 
I'm trying to help you, protect you. We all are. Again, Frank is very one track in this whole movie. Helen? <laughs> oh, what you done to you? This is a very exhausting and physically tolling thing for Helen, and she is bedridden. And while she's bedridden, she's being summoned by Imhotep. And she keeps trying to convince any of the nurses or any of the help that are around her mm-hmm. that she needs to go. Like, Again, help me. Dracula, Helen does, or um, <laughs> Nina does the same thing. <laughs> Someone's like, here, have this wolfsbane. Mummy hates wolfsbane. She knows that if she keeps resisting him, she's going to die. Like, this is just taking everything out of her. Yeah, basically, the curse that he's putting on her is she's ill, she's weak, she cannot feel normal or like herself unless she makes her way to him. Yes. And so Muller is there and he's like, well, then just go. (laughs) Just like, go to him. And because he has a plan, he does. He does have a plan. So he's like, just the next time that he summons you go. Frank, however, I don't think he's privy to this plan. He ends up putting the amulet foreshadowing right on the door to help protect Helen. Uh-huh. And as soon as he does, because you know that Emotep is looking in his little wondrous pool yeah, with the cat by his side. Now. <laughs> I know that cat is the cutest and most evil little thing ever. And he's just chilling on the side. <laughs> with a mean face. Oh, with a little grump face. He's like, I killed the dog. I'll kill anything. <laughs> um, so at this point, Ardeth Bay or Imhotep, is putting a curse on Frank. And he's, you know, undoing his collar. And you think he's going to have the same sort of heart failure that his father had, that he's going to kill him. But what Ardeth Bay is really doing is controlling his body to get him to remove that Isis amulet amulet from the door so she can leave. What? I did not get that. I thought that. Yeah, I I thought that. Oh, that makes so much more sense. I thought that Frank was like, I need that amulet because obviously I'm being murdered. I mean, that could be it, too. This that's just how I read it. But this makes way more sense because as soon as he removes the amulet from the door, she walks out. Yeah. So it gets to them at the museum and Emotep has dressed up Helen as the princess. And now she is basically no longer Helen. She is now Anxanaman because basically she is Anxanaman. She's the reincarnation of her. Uh And now she's having all the memories of the Egyptian princess. Yes. And, you know, she says all these things about how she wants to be with Ardeth Bey or Imhotep and all that. But she is also someone else, Helen, at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Ardeth Bey has a plan. Oh, yeah. So from here, he ends up showing her he's like this this is nothing and he points to the mummy of the princess that helen is the princess this was just a vessel is what the old body is and he breaks through the glass around it picks up that thing all willy-nilly sets it off in the fireplace and sets fire to it yeah well what he's explaining it to her i like how he says that he could have raised this dead thing without a soul like that just Mm -hmm. by reading the scroll but if it doesn't have her soul what's the point yeah it is thy dead shell i tried then to raise this body i could raise it now but it would be a mere thing that moved at my will without a soul he knows that her soul now lives inside of helen yes 
So he burns the body of Anxanaman. And then Helen figures out at the same time, and he's explaining it to her, that he will need Helen to die, and he will raise her back up as the princess. Yes. Again, because even though she has the memories of the princess now, she's basically the princess. She's also Helen. So he wants her to be fully 100% Anxanaman, and he wants her to basically be the living dead like himself. Yes, he wants her to join him. She ends up exclaiming that she's a priestess of Isis. And then this is where I saw Frank was not dead. He busts in. Yep. Comes in with Muller. So at this point, Dr. Muller and Frank come looking for Helen and Imhotep is going to kill her using this stabbing instrument. Uh Uh-huh. It's called a knife. (laughs) Well, it's not really a knife. I mean, it's it's like a chiseled, like a, like a, yeah, it's like a chiseled stone blunt knife. Yeah. And at this point, you don't know if she's speaking as Helen or Anxanaman, but she basically doesn't want to die. She's young and she's alive and she wants to stay that way. Yeah. I think that she's as Helen there. I think she could be as both, actually, going back and forth, just a a little bit of both. So she doesn't want to die. And I like that when they burst in, she's asking them to save her from this mummy. Save me from that mummy! So Emotep, he's interrupted, and it gives Helen a moment to to get away from Emotep and go over to the statue of Isis and prays to and pleads to the statue to help save her. Since she is the priestess of Isis. Yes. And the statue's arm raises up, much like the other statue did earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it has an onk in its hand. Yes. And it sets the scroll on fire, which, since the scroll brought back the mummy to life mm-hmm. would naturally kill the mummy yeah and kill wa- the mummy i wonder if sir joseph wemple was to succeed in burning the scroll if that would have killed imhotep yeah early on yeah yeah probably yeah so um isis does the job imhotep becomes more mummified like he did mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film and Ends up being a skeleton and collapses. Um, which I thought was a great effect. <laughs> um, and then Frank is able to, I guess, I'm going to say snap Helen out of it, but bring Helen back to him with his love. Helen, come back. It's Frank. Come back. So they live happily ever after the it, end. It really does just go <laughs> like... The, it goes directly into the end. Well, it's funny because the camera pans down for us to look at the remains of Imhotep. And as the camera's panning down, it fades to black. Like you barely get a look at him. Maybe they did that on purpose because it was too gruesome for a 1932 audience to look at bones. Possibly. <laughs> and then you get the classic universal ending of the globe spinning. And then you get the cast again mm-hmm. with my favorite slogan on top. A good cast is worth repeating. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is The Mummy 1932. The Mummy. Directed by Carl Freund, starring Boris Karloff, Zeta Johan, David Manners, and Edward Van Sloan. What did you think of it, Anthea? So, it's not my favorite. I'm not too sure what I need more from this movie, but it was it was a lot more slow moving than I expected. There is a lot of exposition in this movie. There is. You're fed a lot of information in a very short time, especially at the beginning of the movie. And then it slows down drastically and has spurts of a lot of information. And I found it, especially 
with taking notes and absorbing what this movie was about as a little more um there's no room to breathe i felt like Mm -hmm. as soon as i looked down something would happen and i had to rewind it and Mm -hmm. i don't like doing that because it takes you out of those moments yeah um and then i did fall asleep which is unfortunate um because (laughs) visually i think this movie is so great but i just didn't i could not it was very hard to get through it would i recommend people watch it i do think that people should eventually see it would it be like the first thing i'd recommend no it's just it was really hard for me to get through and i hate saying that because when i think back on it i'm like oh great movie Getting through it, though, was very difficult. And it's not that long of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I will say to a degree, I agree. The way I feel about The Mummy is similar to the way I feel about Dracula, where it's slow, stagey, talky. Like Dracula, the first 10 minutes is the best part of the movie. Yeah. uh, When you see him coming to life. I like Dracula way more than this. I I do like Dracula more, but I hate to say, you know, The Mummy is probably my least favorite of the cl- of the, that's okay of the main monster movies the mummy is my least favorite unless you want to count the 1943 version of the phantom of the opera <laughs> but i love the mummy character himself i love ardith bay i love boris karloff i'll watch anything with boris karloff uh-huh but yeah it's very talky and it, it's not my favorite yeah um, it's just a lot a lot to absorb and it's not necessarily presented in the best packaging i think that there just needs to be a little bit of tweak there should have been a little bit more tweaking in it yeah yeah the mummy himself looks incredible it's one of jack pierce's best makeups Mm -hmm. he really does look so great in the frankenstein episode i talked about how i would watch frankenstein with my grandma when i was very little Mm -hmm. the mummy was another one that we would watch and i remember watching those five minutes you know when he went for a little walk vividly as a toddler that's all i remember I must have fallen asleep right after that scene every time I would guess. I even remember wanting to watch it, but only up to that scene. Because also as a kid, when you're watching these monster movies, you want to see a mummy. And the mummy is only in it for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Ardeth Bay is not a mummy. He's just a, a wrinkly guy. Yeah. But I do love it for the fact of Boris Karloff and his character. So with that, why don't we... uh talk a little bit about the making of this movie let's do this all right tell me so let's talk a little bit how to make a mummy you ever wanted to make a mummy no well this is how you're gonna make one (laughs) so first i just thought i would mention the first film version of the mummy not this story in particular but the first film version of a mummy there was a living mummy in a 1901 film called The Haunted Curiosity Shop. I don't know if it's available. I mean, probably not, but I'd be curious to see it. So The Mummy was heavily inspired by the discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1922. And when this happened in 1922, it was a sensation. It made headlines all over the world. Mm -hmm. It was very popular. And it inspired lots of the popular architecture around the time. Like if you look at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood, uh, lots of the theaters, the Vista Theater, all have this sort of Egyptian look. And these are theaters from the 1920s. The Alex Theater the Alex Theater. So Egyptian culture was really popular, stemmed from the discovery of this tomb. It was 
a huge thing. So a short distance from the Nile River was the Valley of the King, which is where pharaohs were entombed. And that is where Howard Carter and George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, discovered the tomb. Mm -hmm. So they discovered the tomb. And, you know, obviously everyone knows the story of, of all the stuff that was found in King Tut's tomb, all these ancient artifacts. And it was reported by newspapers of the time that there was a curse attached to finding this tomb. Okay. Newspapers reported that a cobra went into Howard Carter's balcony and ate his pet canary. Oh my gosh. Is that true? Possibly. But <laughs> but is it a curse? Uh-huh. And then Lord Carnavan, the um, Howard Carter's uh, partner that found the tomb, he died five months later. <gasps> of what? How? He got bit by a mosquito on his face or neck somewhere, and he nicked it while shaving, and he got malaria and pneumonia from that wound. Also, at that exact same time that he died, power went out in all of Cairo. Uh-huh. Also, at the time of his death, his dog was howling very loudly, fell over, and died. Yeah, it's totally cursed. Hundred <laughs> percent. Now, it was also reported that there were over twenty-five deaths and suicides of people that were involved with the opening of King Tut's tomb. Okay. When they say 25 deaths or suicides, basically, if there was someone, you know, if there was a digger and their sister's boyfriend's cousin died, they would consider that part of the curse. You know? Oh, well, like, that does... Um... So newspapers really pushed the idea of this curse further than what it really was. In fact, most people say that there wasn't at any point any sort of curse that was ever read or mentioned at all it was more of the idea of the newspaper people even though one of the guys did die five months later i mean it's just his death is so extreme (laughs) of like a mosquito bite that leaves him malaria and pneumonia and then his dog is howling and his dog drops dead yeah it's it it, it, that's a a lot to take in and just be like no it's not cursed it's a it's a strange coincidence it's a lot to unpack (laughs) So originally, before the mummy was the mummy, uh, Universal wanted to create another horror film for Boris Karloff. Mm -hmm. And there was something called Cagliostro, The Great Imposter. And that was going to be Boris Karloff's next movie. And that was written by Nina Wilcox Putnam. And Karloff was to play a magician who, through magic, was able to stay alive for more than 3,000 years. And he was in love with a woman who had betrayed him 3,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And throughout the 3,000 years of him being alive, he would always look for women who resembled his betrayed love Mm -hmm. to murder them. Interesting. So it's somewhat of a similar idea as The Mummy. Eventually, that script was then taken by John Balderston, who we know from writing Dracula and Frankenstein as a playwright, and he Americanized it. He brought the Egyptian aspect to the story, mm-hmm. and he was also a reporter that was in Egypt during the opening of King Tut's tomb. Okay. But he was very interested in Egyptian culture and knew a lot about it. So he put all these ideas into the script that would become The Mummy. Uh, When he wrote the script, he included photos and he had references of types of costumes that the costumers should do. And he had facts in there like mummies burn like dried tinder, like just random facts for filmmakers to know when they do their scenes. Mm -hmm. So he wrote the script. Early names for the movie was The King of the Dead or Imhotep. Mm. 
but they eventually settled on the mummy. Nice and simple. The mummy's very nice and simple, very clean cut, and tells you exactly what you're in for. Even though I will say, they could have upped the mummy. (laughs) They could have had more mummy in it. Yeah, more mummy. (laughs) More mummy presents. So John Balderston, he used a lot of actual lore as a basis for his screenplay. Uh, The scroll was based on the Book of the Dead for resurrection spells. When they did the remake in 1999 with Brendan Fraser, they actually used the Book of the Dead instead of the scroll, if you remember. Yes. You must not read from the book! So as I said, they used a lot of actual lore for the mummy. Using names of different gods and pharaohs and things all like that. The cat in the movie is referred to as Bast, which was the cat goddess. And in the movie, they refer to as Bast as the goddess of evil sendings. Bast in Egyptian lore is actually uh, a good goddess. Mm-hmm. Bast is the goddess of protection, harmony, and warm rays of the sun. Hmm. And the the uh, statue of that goddess is sort of a human figure with a cat head. Oh, okay. And then there's the Isis statue. In real Egyptian culture, she is the goddess of magic, fertility, motherhood, death, healing, and rebirth. And then, you know, the statue uh, in the movie, she's holding the Ankh in one hand, which she uses to destroy Ardith Bay. Mm-hmm. And in the other hand is a musical instrument called a sistron, which is sort of a, a tambourine. Okay. And then, so some of the main characters, their names are actual people that uh, were alive in ancient times. Anxanamen was the real name of King Tut's wife. Oh. And Imhotep was actually Pharaoh Djoser's advisor. He was one of the first doctors, and people believed him to be the god of healing, and he oversaw the building of the first pyramids. Hmm. He also invented the Egyptian calendar and early hieroglyphics. So he was a real genius of his time. There's no rhyme or reason recorded in history books of the making of the mummy as to why John Boulderston chose these names for these characters, except they just liked the sounds of their name. Okay. Because obviously someone like Imhotep being a genius and such a well-established person of those times to play an evil mummy doesn't quite make sense, you know. Yeah. Ardith Bay, it's actually an anagram of death by Ra, the sun god. Oh. And do you remember there was a character in the 1999 version named Ardith Bay also? No. The name's spelled differently. I think it's A-R-D-A-T-H instead of E-T-H. Okay, who is he? But it's the guy with the goatee and long hair that's that's part of the crusade that protects oh, the, the, uh-huh, the uh-huh, curse uh-huh. of the mummy. Yeah, or the, yeah. The, the, who protects the tomb. The tomb. Yeah. So his name is Ardith Bay in that movie. I had no idea. So let's get into the uh, main actors of the movie. We have Boris Karloff, David Manners, Edward Van Sloan, those are both from Dracula. Uh, Bramwell Fletcher is the one that revives the mummy, as we mentioned earlier. Noble Johnson from King Kong. And Z.T. Johan as Helen or Anxanamen. When John Balderston was writing the script, he knew that this was going to be a, a hefty part. They needed a good actress for this part. And his first suggestion was Catherine Hepburn. But Catherine Hepburn had moved back east by that point. So she was out of the running, but... Uh, she could have been the star of The Mummy. That would have been interesting. Boris, Boris Karloff, got paid $750 a week for his role, which was pretty good for the time. How many weeks? You know, I think the movie only took about 23 days to shoot. Wow. So they cast Zita Johan to 
play Helen, and she was really perfect casting. Besides looking like she could be Egyptian, she had mystical experiences herself, and she was a devout believer in reincarnation. Oh. When she talks about her acting style and how she gets into character, you could see how how she thought. She's quoted as to saying, To me, the theater was related to the spirit. I always demanded the truth of myself as an actress. That was my creed. To me, acting was dying unto the self, the becoming of another person. Before every performance, I sat alone in my dressing room, said my prayers, died unto myself, and became my character. So she would believe that she would sort of embody all these characters that she were to play, and that's kind of what she's doing in The Mummy with reincarnation yeah. mm-hmm. and going from Helen to Anx and Amun. The film was directed by Carl Freund, who we have talked about in the past as the cinematographer of Dracula and Metropolis and uh, The Golem. Mm-hmm. He was also known as Papa. And, you know, he invented the Norwood light meter, the light meter that pretty much all cameramen use these days. Oh, really? So he was a great cinematographer. Not sure about a director, though. Yeah. And according, did he direct anything else aside from this? He did a few other things. He did a movie called Mad Love with Colin Clive and Peter Lorre, which was really good. Huh. But according to Zita Johan, he was very unpleasant to work for. Oh, really? As I told you, the movie took 23 days to shoot, and mm-hmm. Carl Freund was always worried about staying on schedule, and he took it out on Zita Johan. One time, he told her that she would perform nude from the waist up. And he did that because he wanted her to throw a fit so she would delay production and have an excuse as to why the movie's taking longer so he could use her as a scapegoat instead of his own issues. That's ridiculous. And But to his surprise, she said, okay, I'll do that if you could get it by the censors, and that kind of shut him up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Called his bluff. Yeah. And then remember in the uh, in the movie when she's walking the dog, she's kind of wearing this black suit dress. Uh-huh. Well, before they filmed that scene, Carl Freund told her that he didn't want that dress wrinkled. So he wouldn't get her a chair or give her a chair. So she never had a chair in the movie that had her name on it. And her publicist, I think, or someone said that they were going to get it for her. And she said no. But he made her stand for two days so she wouldn't wrinkle her costume. Wow. Then she did the pool of memory scene. She was so exhausted and she passed out on the set during that scene. Now, there was a whole deleted sequence that they were going to do. Mm -hmm. A whole reincarnation scene. Okay. And in this reincarnation scene, Helen, or Anxanamen, was shown as her reincarnated self throughout history. Okay. So you would see... Zita Johan as an 8th century barbarian queen committing suicide rather than be taken by Viking hoarders. Okay. Then it would cut to her as a medieval lady of the court. Then it would cut to her as an aristocrat of France and then as a 13th century noblewoman. And finally, she was going to be a Christian martyr who was to be fed to the lions. Now, this scene of her being fed to the lions, Carl Freund made it so this scene was going to be the last thing to be shot. Was he going to have her killed by these lions? (laughs) Well, she showed up to set and there were a bunch of empty cages around and everyone else came to set. Carl Freund, cinematographer, everyone else, they went in the cages and she was to be outside of the cages and act with these hungry lions. Oh, my gosh. 
Uh, they did it on the last day because if something were to happen, her scenes were already filmed. Now, because she was so exhausted with the whole filming process already and just annoyed of everything, she didn't care what happened to her. So she just did it anyway. The lions looked at her and paid her no attention because she was just a sad bag of bones, as she said. Um, <laughs> just exhausted. Unfortunately, after all that, they cut out the whole sequence anyway. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just really mad at how crappy this man treated her for no reason. Yeah. Other than the fact that she was the lead woman. Yeah. And, you know, she hated the experience so much. And she didn't even really want to be a Hollywood actress. She, uh, she was a Broadway actress, but there's more money in Hollywood. So after this horrible experience, she told Carl Emily Jr. to drop her option to not put her on contract, to not put her in a movie again, basically. Mm hmm. So filming of The Mummy began in early fall of 1932. And in advertising material, this is the first time that they referred to Boris Karloff as simply Karloff or Karloff the Uncanny. <laughs> and reviewers of the Times said, he is now officially Karloff. Gone is the Boris to that mysterious land where first names go, probably walking hand in hand with Greta, formerly part of Garbo. so Karloff on the set you know Karloff was a big animal lover he loved dogs and he became great friends with Wolfram the German Shepherd and the White Cat oh wait what was the name of the White Cat I don't know they call him Bast in the movie so yeah yeah I don't know what his real name was so why don't we talk about how Jack Pierce made the mummy Please. Now, I said before, this is one of my favorite makeups of all time, probably in the top three. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein's my all-time favorite makeup, I think. Okay. That makeup took three and a half hours to do. Okay. To make Boris Karloff a mummy took eight hours. Jeez Louise. Karloff called it the most trying ordeal he had ever endured. So if they did that makeup for eight hours, how long did it take them to do... Or to shoot that scene, because it's only one scene in the movie. Yeah. You know, I don't know if they did it for more than one day or not. I know they were up to like 2.30 in the morning filming. And they probably started at like the crack of dawn, you know. Yeah. So it was probably like a 24-hour event, I would imagine. So Jack Pierce, the first thing he did was he pinned back Boris Karloff's ears. Okay. Then he would dampen his face and cover his entire face with thin cotton strips. And then he would put collodion over the cotton. What's collodion? Collodion is kind of a um, kind of a liquid substance that you put over the makeup to. It basically made the wrinkles on him. Oh, oh, okay, I know what it is. So it's like a liquid, and then it like um, it'll grab the skin and and contract it. Yeah, basically the way that it works is Jack Pierce would take a piece of Boris Karloff's skin, he would stretch it out. Mm-hmm. Then he would put the collodion on and then he would use a, a hair dryer to dry it. And then when he would let the skin go, it would make all these wrinkles on him yep. and then it would settle in the crevices of his face. And, okay. And then he secured the cotton on him with spirit gum. That whole time during the eight hours, all Boris could do to relax really was smoke. And he couldn't talk when he had that makeup on. It sealed his mouth shut, basically. Uh So he would always have to motion for a cigarette and uh, (laughs) he could never ask for one. Hmm. Then Jack Pierce, he would slick back Boris's hair and covered it with beauty clay. After it would harden, Pierce would carve cracks into the hair and he would pour some sort of fluid in it to suggest a serrated effect, apparently. Okay. Boris's face is done. His hands were done in a similar fashion. Okay. And then... 
Jack Pierce would wrap Boris Karloff up with 150 feet of acid-rotted linen. Uh, He passed the linen through a hot oven to make them look even more decayed. Mm-hmm. Probably was nice and warm. Wow. And then... <laughs> it wasn't like hot oven applied directly. I know. And then he would take the linen and he would tape it to Karloff's joint so he could still move his arms and legs and all that. And then after he had the whole makeup on, Jack Pierce would dust Karloff with Fuller's Earth, which is basically dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when he moves to see the dirt falling off of him. So after this whole eight-hour process of creating the mummy makeup, Jack Pierce, he forgot something in the costume. Can you guess? Something for him to pee out of. He forgot to put a fly. <laughs> so Karloff had to hold his pee throughout the whole picture. <laughs> or the whole scene. Oh my gosh. The Ardith Bay makeup was far more enjoyable. Again, it was the same sort of dryer and collodion that would uh, uh, make the wrinkles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one only took an hour to put on, but it was a bit painful to take off as it really had to be melted off of his face almost. <laughs> so, you know, there's always this theory that Jack Pierce wasn't a celebrated makeup guy in his time. Okay. And it wasn't until after he was booted out by Universal that he became famous and celebrated. But there's evidence that that might not be true and that he was well known. In fact, uh, he was presented an award for his makeup in The Mummy. Karloff presented the award to him from the Hollywood Filmograph Journal. And there's a photo of him receiving this trophy. And the trophy was assumed gone. And one time in the 80s, they were refurbishing the old makeup studio when they found it under a sink in there. So the the statue still exists today. Oh my gosh, that's so hilarious. So in terms of filming, the first thing they needed to do was find a location and they needed a rocky area that looked like Egypt and they went to Red Rock Canyon about 100 miles north of L.A. Okay. I want to go visit that place. It looks very neat. Let's do it. As I said before, the Pool of Memory scene was a very innovative special effect of the time. And another innovation that they did was, it may have only been one shot, I'm not sure, but it was the process screen. They flew a crew to Egypt to get the exteriors of like the Cairo Museum and things like that. Uh But they also filmed them traveling through Egypt. So there's the scene of Edward Van Sloan and David Manners in the car and in the background are locations in Egypt. So they filmed that, rear projected it and put it behind them in the car as they're as they're going. And I, I read something that this was the first use of that ever. I've read contradicting information that this isn't the first, but it's one of the first. <laughs> so they filmed the movie. It completes around Halloween 1932. Mm-hmm. Then they go into the editing process, and there is something that is very significant that happens. What? It's the first universal horror movie to significantly use music. Oh, okay. And even then, it's so sparse. It is. There's around 20 minutes worth of music in the hour and 13 minutes, I think it was. Um, It was Carl Freund's idea to put music into the movie, and he had composer James Dietrich make the music. Freund ended up not liking all the music that was created, so he used library music as well. Mm -hmm. That's where you get the theme from Dracula, Swan Lake. Or okay. Um, the final cost of the movie was $196,000. That's nothing. It was very cheap compared to Dracula and Frankenstein, which I think both were over 300000 Okay. It premiered November 29th, 1932. It was very successful. 
and it went on to spawn several sequels. Um, In the initial Universal run after The Mummy, there was The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. (laughs) Now, none of these are a direct sequel to The Mummy. Oh, really? Meaning Imhotep is never in any of these sequels. It's a different mummy starting in The Mummy's Hand. Really? Okay. But it still spawned those sequels and made The Mummy a classic horror character that we all know today. And we have two remakes, the 1999 Brendan Fraser version and the Tom Cruise version that came out a couple of years ago. I'm not saying that that Mummy with Tom Cruise was good, but I'm not saying it was bad. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't. It was okay. It was different. Perhaps someday we'll talk about that. But that's the story of The Mummy and how it was made. Very nice. So that's The Mummy. I hope you guys enjoyed reminiscing and talking about Imhotep and the ancient times of Egypt. (laughs) I did. I really enjoyed talking about this movie more and finding out more about it than um, watching it, which is unfortunate. But I'm glad we watched this and now be able to watch, even though the the other movies are not direct sequels, Mm -hmm. do they have callbacks to this? Like, I mean, should you have watched this movie before you go into all of the sequels for it? No, you don't have to. There's no callbacks at all, except they do reuse footage from this movie. For instance, the mummy that is in the sequels is called Karis. And in the mummy's hand, he's played by Tom Tyler. And they show how he becomes mummified. And they use those flashback scenes of Boris Karloff being wrapped. But whenever it turns to a close up, they replace Karloff with Tom Tyler. Oh, okay, Gotcha. Okay, That's pretty much it. Um, I got to say, even though I don't love the movie, I love the mummy character. I have so many toys of the mummy. I have models that i've painted it's a great character the sets are beautiful it's shot so well there's just a little something and i don't know what it is in the movie itself it leaves me wanting maybe you just needed more mummy maybe just yeah amp up a little bit more mummy (laughs) a little bit more mummy and a little bit more homicidal cat so we hope you uh, join us on our next episode. Where can they find us, Anthea? Well, you can find us at podsandmonsters.com. And on our website, we now have a viewing list. So you can see what movies are up next. And we've also included the trailer wherever applicable. So please check us out at podsandmonsters.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pods and Monsters. And then on Instagram, we're Pods and Monsters Podcast. It'd be awesome if you enjoy the podcast to take a moment to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast or let a friend know. It helps out and it gets us out there. And we're having a lot of fun with this. So we hope you're enjoying it as well. Yeah, we really do. And if you guys have any suggestions of movies we should watch and talk about, let us know. We're always open to watching new things that maybe oh, we yeah. both haven't seen before. Exactly. That would be amazing. Um, you can email us at podsandmonsters at gmail.com or you can tweet at us or leave us a comment on Instagram. Slide into those DMs like the mummy slid out of that <laughs> little excavation site. Like he slid out of his bandages into his shroud and fez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like that. So for Pods and Monsters, my name is Robert. 
My name is Inthia. We hope you enjoyed your time with us. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) The mummy. Our closing bell has rung. I did not notice the time.